Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together to worship you in song and in prayer and in scripture and in teaching. Thank you, Father, for the great gift of the Holy Spirit that you have sent to indwell us. I pray that by your spirit this morning, we would hear what you are saying to us. I pray your scripture would resonate in our souls and in our minds I pray that we would hear your voice, whether it's through the message, through the worship, through the words of another believer, or simply by being here, I ask that our hearts and minds uh, would connect with you in this space today. And so we know that you are speaking. Let us hear your voice. Uh, Any of those obstacles and blockages that prevent us from hearing you or, or that cause us to be distracted, I pray that your peace would come in this place and that we would rest in your presence and that we would hear your still, small voice that whispers to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. One of the things that I've been incredibly thankful for in in my life is that none of our kids have had, like, any real major uh, sickness or tragedy. Is there, like, a bit of an echo? It's feedbacking? Okay. Can we just... I'll just keep talking. I just don't want to be like really bothering you guys. I can push through. (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to keep moving Um, and see. Okay. So we've never really had any of those really tragic moments with our kids, which I'm always so grateful for. We had a bit of a close call with Ryan uh, when he had peanut butter at the age of two, and he had a pretty bad allergic reaction to it. But, you know, obviously at the end, everything kind of turned out okay. And so I think... You know, we've been incredibly blessed as a family with good health and a, and a relatively tragedy-free life. But, you know, we do know that tragedies in life can happen. And sometimes children get sick and sometimes, you know, even, even the worst case scenario happens. And, and what we have in our passage today is, is a story about a father with a critically ill child. He's a father of a 12-year-old girl and he's desperately trying to make her better. As a father myself, I, and you know, I hated, especially when we had Ryan, our first child, and I mean, I just hated when he was sick. You know, now that we've got our third, I'm kind of like, okay, it's just a cold. Like, you'll get over it. But I remember when, you know, first, first kid, and, and I'd be worried, you know, and, and I'd be like checking on them through the night and like just like cuddling him and holding him. And I'm like, oh, you're snotty, go away from me. It's totally different now. But, but, I found myself reading this passage from that father's perspective, you know, and, and when you, if you have a critically ill child who just is progressively getting worse and not getting better, and as you read that passage from a parent's point of view, you start to understand the desperation of this father and the fear that this father would have, the fear that you could lose someone so precious to you. And the father's name is Jairus, and Luke tells us, well, we're going to use Luke today. Luke tells the story. So Jesus had just come ashore back in the region of Galilee, probably in Capernaum, 
And we read this, so now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. You just read that, like I think sometimes you can read scripture so quickly, you kind of like go over it, but you think of this father with a 12-year-old girl and she's dying and there's just desperation that's happening here. Let me just give you a bit of a kind of a biblical overview of this. There's three gospels that record this story. Mark and Luke both record the story in a very similar way. Uh, And then Matthew comes along and kind of messes things up because he compresses the story into its shortest form, which seems to contradict Mark and Luke. So just in case you're familiar with the Matthew passage of this, he tells it different than Mark and Luke do. But he's probably just cutting out some details that he didn't think were important because he's just trying to get to the meat of the story. Mark and Luke give us a bit more detail. So I'm going to use Mark and Luke's uh, retelling of this event because I think they give us more detail and they give us a better timeline. So that's just in case you're familiar with the Matthew account, I'm just reminding you there's a, there's a Mark and Luke account as well that's just a little bit different. But if we just read this story quickly... And if we don't immerse ourselves in the details, I think we miss some of the emotions, some of the humanity that's going on. So imagine, okay, you've got to imagine, and some of you maybe don't have to imagine because you've been in this situation, but imagine that your child has been sick for days and days and days. And, And it's not that they're staying at the same level of sickness, it's that they're getting progressively worse. And nothing seems to help, and it's becoming really apparent that your child is in a critical stage that if they don't receive, if something doesn't change, they're going to die. So imagine the fear as a parent you'd feel. Imagine the sorrow. Imagine the desperation. I mean, I know as a parent, if my kid is in that situation, I'm willing to do anything to, to have my kid get better. Like, I would sacrifice my own health for the sake of my kid, right? That's, that's kind of what's happening here in this story. You'd do anything in your power to change the situation. Like, when Ryan had his severe reaction to peanuts, we were at our friend's place in B.C., and uh, as the rash started to spread all over his body and he, he threw up and then his lips were starting to puff up, which is never a good sign, right? And I thought, maybe is his breathing changing? Is, it, is his throat swelling? And we knew we had to get him into an ER. I mean, time was, was critical. We were out at a Bible camp, um, kind of in this back area, and we weren't really sure, will the ambulance get here in time? Should we just take him into ER? Like, his breathing wasn't that. It, he see, still seemed to be breathing okay. Um, my friend was a volunteer firefighter with the department there. He had firefighter plates. So we thought, okay, let's put Ryan in his car and we'll just drive as fast as we can to the ER. We'll get there as fast as we can. We're not going to stop at red lights if we don't have to. We're not going to stop at stop signs. Like maybe these plates will get us through if there's any police. I don't think that would work. But we were like, I don't know. We're not just, we're just not sure what to do. So we drove as fast as we could, you know, down into Salmon Arm, got him to the ER, and we were praying the whole way, you know, that his breathing would maintain, that, that he wouldn't lose breathing. Um, and, uh, of course, if he did, we would have phoned 911 right away, and they would have come. But it was a, it was a whole chaotic thing, and we were desperate. And uh, when we got him in, his oxygen levels were okay. They gave him a shot of epinephrine and Benadryl. The rash went away. The swelling went down, and he was okay. Um, and then he slept like crazy, I think, because of the Benadryl. And now he has an EpiPen forever. And I have a funny EpiPen story, but I won't tell it now. Uh, but, but I think of myself, okay, so how panicked was I when I'm carrying Ryan, who's got rashing all over his body, his lips are swelling, and, and it's very serious, and I'm desperate to get him help. And I'm thinking, Jairus is like this, right? 
This is a critical moment. It's, it's urgent at this point. The daughter is going to die. She's getting closer and closer to death. And so Jairus is starting to think, okay, Jesus is the hope. I mean, he's the only hope. Jesus is known as a healer. Maybe he can do something. But remember, Jesus wasn't in town at this point. So as Jairus is watching his daughter get more and more sick, he's just waiting for news that Jesus is going to arrive. And as soon as Jesus arrives back into town, Jairus races to Jesus because time is short. And pushing through the crowds that welcome Jesus back, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads with Jesus, please come and heal my daughter. Do you notice the desperation here? Jairus realizes that Jesus is the only hope for his daughter. And Jairus is a synagogue ruler. I mean, think about this. So he's the synagogue leader. He's not used to falling at anyone's feet. That's not something he would do. He wouldn't be used to losing his dignity and his honor by pleading in the dust at another man's feet in front of a whole crowd of people. But when the life of his daughter is at stake, he's willing to do anything. He'll go to his knees in the dust at the feet of a, a controversial rabbi because his daughter's dying. And again, remember that Jairus is a religious leader, the synagogue leader. And since he's one of the religious leaders, most religious leaders didn't think all that highly of Jesus. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jairus maybe hadn't thought that highly of Jesus or didn't know what to think. But now that his daughter's dying and he's desperate, he comes to Jesus and he's willing to fall into the dust at his feet. And I wonder if it was difficult for him to do that to give up his pride, to give up his dignity, to fall in the dust in front of a crowd of people and beg with Jesus, please come and heal my daughter. Now, of course, Jesus, you know, we know that Jesus gets moved by compassion, right? And so it doesn't say that in this text, but I imagine Jesus has compassion as he always does and he responds to Jairus' request and they start on their way to Jairus' house. But as much as they want to get there quickly, the crowds of people are starting to increase and they're almost starting to crush in on them. It says in the text, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her, and she came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately the bleeding stopped. So Jesus and Jairus are trying to get to Jairus' daughter, but the crowds have grown so big that they're pressing in on them, and they're having a hard time getting through the crowd. You can think of it as like when you're on the deer foot uh, in rush hour, and there's an accident, and an ambulance is trying to get through, and it's trying to go fast, but, I mean, there's only so fast it can go, right? Or even worse, on Crowchild or at Bottlenecks there with those three lights, That's the, and an ambulance is trying to get through, and there's nowhere to pull off. It's like that, right? They're trying to go. Jairus, I'm sure, is like, okay, come on, Jesus, like she's dying, She's at a critical point, but they're trying to go as fast as they can, and then they stop. This woman pushes her way through the crowds. It's a woman who's just as desperate as Jairus is. It's a different de de desperation, right? Because Jairus' desperation is time-sensitive. It concerns the death of his daughter, the imminent death of his daughter. It's like, it's, you've got to come now, Jesus. Now, this woman is just as desperate, but it's different. This woman, we're told, has been sick with a constant bleeding for 12 years and no one could help her. But both Jairus and this woman are desperate and they see Jesus as their only hope. And this woman kind of interrupts the story. We're like, okay, what happens with the daughter? But we can't get there yet because this woman has come in. And she interrupts the story and she interrupts, you know, the journey to Jairus' home. She kind of takes center stage for a little bit. So we should kind of know, you know, what, what do we know about her? 
We know that she's been bleeding for 12 years. It could have been a continuous bleeding or it could have just been much more than usual or, or something, a wound or something that wasn't healing. It's, it's generally understood by most commentators that there's something wrong with the menstrual cycle here. Perhaps it's chronic uterine bleeding. It's something like this. But because, of, because that was her issue, the problem is bigger than just a medical problem. In the book of Leviticus, which the Jewish people, of course, followed, it clearly identifies this woman's condition as one which made her unclean and which would have restricted her greatly in what she could have done. So I'm just going to go through it so you kind of understand what, what's happening here. So Leviticus 15 says, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. So not only is she unclean, but anyone who comes into contact with her also becomes unclean until evening. It says then, it goes on, when the blood discharges for many days other than the monthly period or continues beyond it, she'll be unclean as long as she has this, just as in the days of her period. So if she's bleeding, she's unclean. That's it. There's, that's, that's the way it's worded. And it says, whoever touches her will be unclean. He must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and he will be unclean until evening. So to get some perspective on how difficult this was for the woman, uh, Jason Fraser puts it this way. So for 12 years, she's considered unclean. She couldn't be touched by a clean person. She couldn't go to the assemblies, the synagogues, or the ceremonies. It's been 12 years since she's enjoyed Passover or Sabbath services. 12 years since she's been able to stand before the high priest to have her sins forgiven on Yom Kippur. 12 years she bore the emotional and psychological baggage of being unclean, which means untouchable. That means no hugs, no kisses, no in, any type of intimacy with a husband if she even had one still at this point. She couldn't prepare her family's food if she had one. She couldn't do housework. She couldn't be a wife. She couldn't be a mom. She would have to sit in isolation because anyone who touched her would be unclean until evening. And I mean, maybe there was an occasion, okay, I'll be unclean until evening. I'll give you a hug. But it wasn't easy. And she couldn't go into crowds because she wouldn't want to make anyone else unclean. For all intents and purposes, it's like she's living the life of a living person, but dead. She can't interact. She can't do any of the normal things that, that a woman would do. And so this is more than just a physical ailment. This is causing emotional and spiritual damage to her. Mark points out with us that the medical side of it was terrible as well. Luke was a doctor, so in his account of it, he just says her condition is incurable, right? But Mark goes a little, gives us some more detail. Mark says this. He's a little less nice to the medical profession. He says, she had suffered a great deal for many doctors through the years and had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. Anyone who's had a loved one suffer through a, a debilitating illness will know what this is like, right? The illness takes over that person's life. And it's just an endless series of hospitals and doctors and appointments and testing. And it's just a dreaded routine. And, and when the illness cannot be cured and they, they say, we don't know what to do, it's incurable, we're not sure what to do, it becomes even worse. And when Mark reports that she had endured much at the hands of physicians, he wasn't kidding. I mean, we're not talking like really nice hospitals and, and testing equipment, right? The Talmud proposes 11 different remedies for this type of illness, including drinking a goblet of wine filled with powder made from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses, which sounds horrible. Another kind of potion they would cook up would be Persian onions cooked in wine. I don't know if that's any good. Probably not. But it said she had tried everything. Nothing had worked. And, and not only that, now she's totally broke. She spent all that she had to try and get better. And so you wonder if, okay, maybe now she's actually a beggar woman looking for strangers to give her money, but having to tell them, but don't come too close. I'm unclean. So we see that her situation is desperate as well. 
Just like Jairus, her only hope is Jesus. She somehow manages to, to make her way through this crowd that's almost crushing Jesus. Now remember, she's not supposed to touch anyone because she's unclean. If she touches anybody, even accidentally, they are unclean until evening. She's not supposed to be in crowds. And this crowd is so big, it's crushing in on Jesus. They're having a hard time making their way through the crowd. But this woman, in desperation, disregards the rule about clean and unclean so that she can get in and touch the cloak of Jesus. Now, I believe the reason that she only touches Jesus' cloak is she doesn't say anything, she doesn't make a big scene, she's just trying to get in there and, and touch the cloak. I think the reason she does this is because she's unclean. I think she's sneaking up on Jesus because as an unclean person, she's like a leper that couldn't be touched, right? A person that the religious community would most likely look down on and say, well, you must have done something to be cursed. You must have done something wrong. You're unclean. We can't be near you. And so maybe she's thinking, and she's probably thinking, Jesus is too holy. He's too righteous to heal an unclean person. He certainly wouldn't want to touch me. In fact, a righteous rabbi would certainly never touch someone unclean because it would make them unclean, making it hard for them to do their job. And so this woman would imagine that Jesus was like all the other religious rabbis, unwilling and unable to touch anyone unclean. So she's not going to ask him to do that. She's just going to sneak in and just touch the hem of his cloak, just, just a little bit. She's respecting him. She's also fearful of what he might do if she finds out what she doesn't maybe know is that Jesus, Jesus touches those who are unclean. You remember the leper? Lepers aren't supposed to be touched either. The leper comes and Jesus stretches out a hand and touches him. Do you know how crazy it is that Jesus touched a leper in that day? And he healed him. Jesus, now, the thing is, Jesus doesn't have to touch people to heal them. We know Jesus can heal from a distance. He's done that before. But in, he touches the leper. And in that instant, he is no longer unclean. He's clean. But she doesn't know this, and so she comes in and she sneaks in and she, she gets the healing. Immediately she's healed and she knows it. And Jesus knows it too. He's walking with Jairus and his disciples. He's trying to get through this massive crowd, and he stops. Okay, so imagine Jairus is like, okay, my house is this way. We've got to get moving to my house. And, and Jairus is leading the way. Follow me. We're going to get there. And then Jesus stops. And Jairus, you know, looks back, and he's like, why are we stopping? My daughter is dying. But Jesus is standing there looking around. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Can you imagine Peter's tone of voice with me here? Right? Like, um, everybody's touching you? I, like, what are you talking about? Who, what do you mean who touched you? And again, Peter would know the situation of Jairus. Like, Jairus has come in in desperation, so Peter is with Jairus here. He's like, yeah, we got to get moving, Jesus. I, we don't have time to talk about who touched you and who didn't touch you. Everyone's touching you. Let's just get moving. And imagine Jairus as Jesus stops and says this, right? His daughter is critically ill. The sooner Jesus gets there, the better. And now Jesus wants to stop and find some person in this vast crowd of people who apparently touched him, but everyone touched him. Right? There's no way, really, to find out who this person is. And to, and to make it worse, read that the whole crowd denied touching him, which is like, yeah, no, somebody, you're all touching him. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know, because power has gone out for me. And just said, Jesus is forcing the issue here. And I think in human wisdom, we would say, Jesus, just forget. Like, that's what Peter's doing. He's like, Jesus, just forget it. 
We've got a girl to get to. Like, who, does it matter? It doesn't matter. Let's get moving. There's a 12-year-old girl who needs you. Why would Jesus delay this journey to the house of Jairus just to find out who had touched him, even if it did produce a healing? I mean, okay, great. Someone's healed. Fantastic. Get moving. But the delay was for the good of the woman who had been healed. And Jesus makes it clear he's going to find out who touched him. Like, he's not taking no for an answer. So then the woman, seeing she couldn't go unnoticed, came trembling. Now, why does she come trembling? It's because she's terrified of what he's going to say. She was an unclean woman who touched a clean, righteous rabbi. She's terrified of what Jesus will say, what the crowd will say. They'll say, did you touch me? Like, we're all touching each other, right? She's terrified. And she falls at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him. We're going to get some, this is where we get the backstories when she starts telling why she touched him. And you can kind of imagine, you know, she comes in trembling, fearful, and she goes, I'm an unclean woman, but, 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 I, it's been 12 years and, and I've been to doctors and they can't do anything and, and now this has happened. And she kind of pours out her life story. And then Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Right, so why was it so important for Jesus to find this woman? You know, why not just let it go? But I think because this woman needed these words of Jesus to go in peace. I, I think Jesus didn't want this woman to experience guilt for, we could say, stealing a healing. Right? This woman would have gone home and she would have been healed, but she might have felt guilty about it. Right? She could have believed that she had sort of like taken this healing from Jesus, right? taken it without permission. And she may have thought, you know, without his knowledge, and that might have kind of weighed on her. And, and she might have even thought to herself, you know, I, I, an unclean person, touched a clean man. I, an unclean person, made all these other people unclean. She might have carried this guilt with her, even though she was healed. And so Jesus' words, go in peace, suggests that she, you, know, hey, you can go home without any guilt. No misgivings. You, you haven't taken a healing. It's been given to you as a gift. A gift of grace. And grace has no guilt. And Jesus wants her to know she's been healed not only with divine power, but with divine grace. And Jesus is reassuring her that she's not made Jesus unclean in any way. All is at peace. It's all at peace. And I mean, it helps the crowd too, right? Who just so love and respect Jesus. When Jesus says, it's go in peace, he's telling the crowd, let her go in peace. It's done. We're not going to be talking about how she was unclean. It's over. She's free of any wrongdoing and commended for her faith. A second thing here is I think Jesus wanted to be sure that this woman and everyone in the crowd would understand that this healing was a result of faith. Because I think it would be possible, had Jesus not identified faith as the source of the woman's healing, to sort of attribute it to other causes, kind of like a magical thing rather than faith. And so Jesus makes sure to identify faith as the real cause of the miracle, right? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. It wasn't magic. It wasn't luck. It's not even just the inherent power of Jesus. The healing, says Jesus, is directly related to this woman's faith. I think sometimes we shy away in the church of talking about faith when we, we talk about healing or miracles and asking or praying for them because we're rightly concerned about, you know, some of the false teachers or so-called faith healers who badger people to increase their faith. And, you know, if whatever's being asked for doesn't happen, they just say, oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith. It's all on you. You didn't demonstrate enough faith, right? Like, why did this person die? Well, you didn't have enough faith. I mean, how callous and cruel is that? We know that that kind of bad teaching happens. 
And that's an error that we want to avoid. But sometimes in trying to avoid that error, then we, we kind of just dismiss the necessity of faith in prayer altogether, right? In our, in our rejection of, of your faith healing and, and that kind of like really bad theology, we go the other direction and kind of don't talk about faith and prayer and miracles and healing uh, in a biblical way. We can't escape the fact here that Jesus attributes much of his healing work to people demonstrating faith. Daughter, your faith has healed you. To the centurion, amazed at his great faith, the servant lives. We see in a, in a negative example when Jesus returns to his hometown and the scripture says he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So we can't overlook the importance of faith in this story. And we also can't overlook the importance of faith in our own prayers and requests. Both the woman here and, and Jairus are demonstrating great faith, right? The woman receives an answer she was only hoping for. She couldn't be certain of it. She receives a lot more than she expected as she reaches out in faith. And Jairus is also going to experience a lot more than he expected, but it's going to require a stretching of his faith. I imagine as we return now to Jairus that his faith in Jesus is maybe wavering a little bit. Because sure, this woman got healed, and yes, it was miraculous, but there's still his critically ill child to think about. And Jesus, if you don't get moving, she could die. You know, and, and I think that that's, we have this whole conversation with the woman. I think, you know, we get these details. Mark and Luke give us these details about the woman's history. And I think it's happening right there in the moment. I think Jesus is listening to this woman pour out her story to him. And, and I imagine that as, you know, this woman is pouring out her story, her medical history and, and what's going on in her family and, and what's been happening in her life. Jairus is like, oh my goodness, like wrap it up. Like we got to get moving because my daughter is dying. And he's like, okay, like they don't have watches, but you know, if he had a watch, he'd be like. <laughs> and I think if I was Jairus, I mean, okay, so imagine being Jairus here. Would you not be getting a little bit angry and apprehensive and frustrated? This delay must be stretching his faith to the breaking point. And then Jairus' worst fears are realized. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And isn't that the news that he's been dreading? It wasn't probably unexpected, but you would imagine that in that moment, Jairus' disappointment and his sorrow would be overwhelming. Right? As a father, if I was in Jairus' position, I'd be incredibly disappointed with Jesus right now. You know, Jesus, if we hadn't stopped to have this long conversation, you might have got there in time. But now she's dead. And I'd be thinking to myself, okay, this woman's faith healed her, and my faith robbed me of the last few minutes of my daughter's life. And the messenger who shares this terrible news gets across the idea, okay, if your daughter was alive, yeah, there's some hope, but now she's dead, there is no hope. It's over. There's no point having Jesus come to the house anymore. And I'm sure Jairus at this moment experiences a moment of disappointment, a moment of, of complete lack of faith in Jesus. I mean, why was this woman healed and his daughter left to die? If Jairus' faith in Jesus isn't broken here, I'm sure it's shaken. Imagine how Jairus feels at Jesus' at this moment. But Jesus looks at him and calmly says, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she'll be healed. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Well, just trust me. Be patient. There's no need to hurry. 
Jesus is calling Jairus to demonstrate incredible faith, to keep trusting even in what seems to be an impossible situation. Faith waits with expectant hope for God to work, but God works in his own time. Timothy Keller writes that God's sense of timing will confound ours. His grace rarely operates to our schedule. Jesus will not be hurried, and when we try and force Jesus into our schedule and our timing, we will struggle to feel loved by him. I think that's true. I mean, how does our faith falter because we have unmet expectations? Our hearts grow weary and our faith flickers as it seems like wave after wave of of storms kind of crash over us and and our faith is being tested and and it's being shaken and, and we want Jesus to come right now in this moment and if he doesn't, but we said you have to, we go, well, do you even love me? And so when our faith is wavering, when those storms are crashing over us, that's when we try and hear the whisper of the Spirit that reminds us Our Father never leaves us nor forsakes us. He works with us and for us. He is good, and his plans for us are good. We hear the words of Jesus as we sit in that stillness, as the storms of life crash over us, and we we remember the words of Jesus, don't be afraid, just believe. And we exercise faith. Although it looks bleak and it looks hopeless, we believe in the goodness of God. And though we are afraid, we believe God sees us and our fears are stilled and peace can come. In exercising their faith, both Jairus and the woman get far more from Jesus than they expected. The woman just wanted a quick healing, kind of a touch and run type of thing. She had no interest in anything deeper than that. But Jesus gives her a deeper understanding, right? Jesus calls her out and says, your faith is what healed you. And now that you know that, you know me. And Jairus wanted healing for his dying daughter, but he's going to get far more than that. Even though the girl has now died and the messenger tells Jairus not to bother with Jesus, Jesus comes anyways. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Some people try and diminish the miracle here, being like, oh yeah, see, she wasn't actually dead. Jesus just sort of like perked her up. And I'm like, listen, they're acquainted with death in that society. People died often. They know when someone is dead. But he took her by the hand, the little girl, and he said, my child, get up. Some of your translations will have um, Talitha Kume or Talitha Kum is what he said in Aramaic. And, and I just want to do a side note here because Talitha is an expression used in Aramaic um, to refer to a young girl, but it literally means a little lamb. So Jesus isn't saying, my child, get up, or girl, get up. He's not, he's saying, little lamb, get up, right? I just want you to understand the tenderness and the compassion that Jesus has here. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jairus put his faith in Jesus for a healing, and what he got instead was a resurrection. And Jairus experienced here both an incredible challenge to his faith and then a strengthening and a deepening of his faith. The woman experienced that as well, right? She had just enough faith to be healed, But Jesus takes that faith and opens her eyes to the reality of her faith and what it accomplishes when it's rightly directed at Jesus. 
In his summary of this passage of scripture, Timothy Keller writes, if you go to Jesus, he may ask of you far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give to you infinitely more than you dared ask or think. We often want our faith to just enhance our already good lives, but faith challenges us. It calls us to lay down ourselves and live for Christ, to trust that he will lead us and protect us. And we may end up giving up more than we wanted or expected, but we'll find that Christ will give us more than we wanted or expected. And this is one of those passages I'd encourage you to read through on your own time. You know, I think there's a depth in the intertwining of these stories that I can't fully bring out in one sermon. But I do believe that the main actual point of this, this story for us is a lesson in faith. We see that faith is strengthened, enhanced, and deepened in those times of crisis and desperation. When there is no human hope left, that is when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. We all want life to be a series of wonderful events with no crisis and no sickness and, and no uncertainty, but real life isn't like that. And our faith in Jesus doesn't take those uncertain times and those desperate times away, but our faith is a certain hope that where human means fail, God's plan prevails. I mean, that's really what faith is, right? It's saying, listen, I don't see any humanly way possible that we're going to get through this or any human way that we're going to go forward in this, but God prevails, and we believe it. Sometimes in those crisis moments, our faith is shaken. Sometimes God seems to be totally ignoring the situation, right? Like Jesus stopping to talk to this woman while Jairus' daughter is lying ill and, and is going to die. And sometimes it seems like God is completely ignoring our cries for help. But it's actually in those times where our faith is strengthened through the testing. As the Apostle Peter says, these trials are only to test your faith, to show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, and your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. It's in those desperate moments where our faith is tested. It's when we choose, like Jairus, to trust Jesus when he says, don't be afraid, just believe. You know, I think Jairus could have said to Jesus, you know what, Jesus, I'm done with you. My daughter's already dead. You think I'm going to bring you now to my house? Forget it, I'm, I'm going to go and grieve my daughter. Jairus didn't have to have faith. He could have said, forget it. I'm done with this, Jesus. I don't know who you are, but I'm out. But he chose to have faith. In his most desperate moment, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, he says, okay. Let's see. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close. And I'm just going to say, I don't, I don't know where you're at today. Perhaps you feel like Jairus, that God is delaying doing a work in your life. Maybe you're ready to give up on it entirely. Maybe your faith is shaken and it's at the breaking point. And I just encourage you today to remember that God's timing isn't our timing. And remember, his plans for us are good and not evil. And even though we don't always understand them, we want to trust Jesus to do more than we would expect. And we trust Jesus when he says, don't be afraid, just believe. I know that's really hard to do. That's what scripture is for, to remind us of who God is and what God has done. It's our foundation of faith. And we look at these stories and we go, Jesus is good. Jesus is compassionate. So I invite you to remember that today as you reflect on this story. Let's worship together.